0: please open your Bibles to Psalm 40, if you would. And while you do that, uh, for context of Psalm 40, if we had read Psalms 37, 30, 38, and 39 in consecutive order, we'd see that the psalmist was experienced, experiencing a, a deep struggle and oppression In his life through those psalms. But now here in Psalm 40. We're going to see that he's actually been delivered from that oppression. Uh, He's now been seeking God and and God has delivered him. And and Psalm 40 is is really a a psalm of rejoicing for all of us. Uh, And during that time that psalmist up until Psalm 40. He had been waiting on the Lord for his deliverance. Well now... Psalm 40 historically is, is a psalm written by King David, and, and that's definitely true historically. But clearly when we look at David's life, we see much of it that does apply to him, but there's a large portion of this particular psalm that does not apply to him particularly. And we, when we read it, and we read Scripture in general, we must see it in the, the full account of redemption and its relation to Christ. And sometimes it's tempting to think that the Old Testament texts, they don't present Christ the way we would like to see him. And in those times we need to remember that there's a unity in Scripture that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that there's a fullness in Christ through both. Um, The Old Testament prophets, for the most part, they, they understood what they were writing about, and whom they were looking for in their scripture writing. And who they were looking for was Christ, the Messiah. And my purpose to say that is is that when we find Christ in the Old Testament, it's a key to unlocking the Old Testament itself for New Testament Christians. And we need to strive to see the majesty of Christ throughout all the scriptures, not just in the New Testament, and though I believe that all the Psalms have a relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ, I, I see that Psalm 40 in particular as a messianic Psalm. Uh, it's, we need to read this Psalm that it, it, not in the context that this is David's life that he's talking about. We need to read these words as though they are the very words of Christ himself speaking to us. And and in fact, Hebrews chapter 10 will verify that that is true. So when I I read Psalm 40, to me, it should be red-lettered. It is Christ's words, not not David's. So let's read Psalm 40 together. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And as I read this psalm, there's a transition that I want you to notice in verse 11. I'll, I'll point that out as we go. Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering... You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. A delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I have done the glad news. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your, deliver, your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And verse 11 is where we see that transition. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Now when I originally began to think about this communion meditation on Psalm 40, I intended to consider much more That's in a, a broader sense, uh, almost expounding much, much of it. But today I'm only going to look at verse 1. The Lord, Lord willing, I'm going to be doing a second part of this psalm in the next communion meditation. And it's at that time I want to look at that second part of the psalm in that transition half of it um, and, can, and consider those things later. But for now, I just want to consider verse 1. And there's a couple of things that I want to think about in, in that verse. First, I want, to, I want to see what does this teach us about Christ, And and second, what is the application that there is today for for Christians like us? How does it apply to us? Um, So reading verse 1 again, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Well, this verse testifies that it is Jesus who ultimately waited for the Lord to deliver him. He's the one who went to the cross and suffered death. He is the one who remained in the grave for three days. And after he had died, he was lifted out of the pit of death, and his feet were set upon that rock, never to die again. So, in that verse, what does Christ mean when he says he waited patiently for the Lord? Isn't he the Lord? Well, in our Bible translations of Psalm 40, it reads, I waited patiently for the Lord. And you'll find that adverb patiently in, in most English translations. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of a, it reminds me of a passive inaction. It's kind of like going to the bus stop and waiting for the bus. You, you walk up and you sit down and there's not much else to do until the bus gets there. So you're, you're really waiting inactively. You're just sitting there doing nothing. But I don't think that's what this is really talking about. Um, the original Hebrew in 40, in Psalm 41, it, it's not literally read, I waited patiently. The word patiently isn't even there. Um, and I don't mean to bore you with Hebrew grammar, but I'm going to. Um, the original Hebrew actually doubles up the use of the verb, which is called kawah, and I'm, I don't speak Hebrew fluently, so if my pronunciation is wrong, I apologize. Uh, kawah, and that means, it's the verb meaning to wait in Hebrew. Um, and the word to wait occurs in this verse uh, first, in what's called the call stem, and that's, a, that's the common and active voice t- verb tense for, for Hebrew words. Uh, you'll learn that in Hebrew. Uh, I didn't think it was going to come in handy, but it does. It's really weird. Um, then immediately, though, following that call stem of to wait, we are immediately followed with the same word wait, but it's, it's in the PL stem, which is a different stem for, for a verb. And this changes the meaning of that word to a more intense action, so if we were to actually uh, literally translate that, it would be to wait, I waited. And, and the Hebrew does that. It's, it's to indicate a more intense action that's coming. English, uh, we use a participle and to smooth the translations out. Uh, Linda, I think that's right. Um, you're an English major, right? So you understand these things better than I do. Um, but the participle, smoothing that translation, I waited to, to wait on the Lord, it would be waiting, I waited for the Lord. And, and this doubling in the text seems to communicate to me two different things. There's two types of waiting going on here. There's a, a, a general, active, passive waiting almost, an ongoing type, I guess I would say. And that's coupled with that, TL stem verb of waiting, which is communicating a more intense waiting uh, that we see. And, and so Christ is, he's waiting on the Lord really in a twofold meaning. And when I, when I say that, I mean first that Christ's entire life was a life of waiting, it was actively waiting. And since his incarnation, He'd come to to earth for for one purpose, to, to save his people from sin. You know, from birth, that was the whole purpose that he had to wait for, that ongoing waiting. And throughout the New Testament, he testifies that he's aware of this. He knows he's waiting for a specific time to arrive. And in the New Testament, we read over and over that his hour has not yet come. And we see this in, in John 2, verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Or John 7, verse 6. My time has not yet come. Or John 7, verse 8. My time has not fully come. John 7, verse 30. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So what is this? Hour or time Christ was waiting for. Well, the active ongoing waiting that Christ did was waiting for the the hour to show himself as Messiah, to reveal himself as the Savior that the Scriptures were talking about, that He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But in a broader view, His hour didn't really fully come until He had reached the cross and was crucified. And this takes us to this this second, more intense state of waiting that he did. And in that, Christ's waiting can definitely be seen as an intense and passionate wait. Christ was waiting to be glorified once his hour had come. Uh, He was all his life waiting to bear the human sin and guilt and that constantly bore down on him, causing him to constantly be in prayer to the Father. In Isaiah 53.3, we read that Christ is referred to as a, a man of sorrows because of the pain and suffering that he was waiting to endure. Uh, and that waiting is, is the wrath of God as our sin bearer. He knew the magnitude of his suffering that he waited for. And uh, this becomes clear at the end of the verse of Psalm 40 where it says... He inclined to me and heard my cry. His cry in Psalm 40 characterizes the intensity and the severity of his sufferings and the extent that he felt them. It shows us that he was not indifferent to them, and he suffered both physically and mentally. And since we know the, the father heard his cry, this proves that his cry in Psalm 40 was a cry done through prayer of supplication. This is very revealing of the frailty of, of Christ's human nature. And as brother Pat beautifully taught us in the Hypo What? a couple of weeks ago, Christ has two natures. His fully divine nature, and here we see his fully human nature. Uh, this cry gives us a, a wondrous view of, into the humanity of Christ and the intensity of which he actually did cry out. Uh, the Gospels contain the accounts of the cries of Christ seen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, that was before his crucifixion. And, and I'm not going to read those, those passages, but you can find them in, in Matthew 26, 38-39, Mark 14-35, Luke 22-41. But there's one in particular uh, and that's found in Hebrews chapter five verse seven, and this depicts this this cry of agony of Christ in the garden, and it describes it very well in comp- in comparison to our, our Psalm forty verse one here. And I'm going to read that. It says, "In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard." Because of his reverence. Well, this cry was not merely a cry due to the pain and suffering that he was going to receive at the hands of man. It was the, the cry of the imputed sins that he was getting put upon himself. The cries are, are cries of anguish overwhelming him because of the, the anger against sin. The verse provides us great insight into how Christ actually viewed sin divine deliverance. Christ understood that God the Father has both a natural and a moral power here. Christ knew the Father's omnipotence. Through the natural power of his strength, the Father was able to save him from death. Christ also knew the Father's sovereignty. It's Christ is without sin. We know this. He's undeserving of death, and, and because of his perfection... The father has the moral right and authority to save him. And Christ's appeal is to both attributes. The cry to his father's omnipotence is his request to remove this cup and let it pass from him. Because of his humanity, Christ sought deliverance as an object of his fear. However, Christ's cry also was to his father's sovereignty, sovereignty. But Christ submitted to the will of his Father when he says, Not my will, but yours be done. Christ submitted to him out of an object of faith. Well, the cries were for deliverance, but deliverance from from what? Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that he was looking for deliverance from death. But not just from the necessity of dying. The Father couldn't do that in consistency with the economy of human salvation. This, self, this sacrifice had to be completed. As we read in Philippians 2, verse 8, it was required that he become obedient even to the point of death. So the cry to be saved from death is, is deliverance from death after having died, as in his glorification through the resurrection. And this was what what Christ most earnestly and passionately waited for. And this is his specific request in his high priestly prayer we find in John chapter 17, verse 5, which reads, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His request is to end his waiting by carrying him through the suffering of the cross and the grave by completing his work that he came to do. All his supplications were ultimately answered. Uh, Luke 22 records that an angel was actually sent to strengthen him. Uh, Therefore, he was able to regain his composure and suffer at the hand of men before he even reached the cross, as well as the agony that he suffered on the cross. His active and intense waiting would be finally over and, and God brought him through the, the dust of death crowning him with the glory and honor to rule and reign forever and what I want to see in Psalm 40 verse 1 is that this contains a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ we just need to see it yet this brings me to the second thing I want to consider and, and how this applies to ourselves as Christians. And an easy answer to, to that would be, we're constantly praying out in supplications to God the Father. We want Him to answer our prayers. We, we, we have desires. We have things that we're looking for. And, and we know that there's some things on this earth that we can't do for ourselves that we, we need to cry out to God the Father to answer those prayers. Uh, we need to wait on the Lord for those things for sure. Uh, but I think waiting on the Lord is, is it's more than just waiting on our prayers to be answered. Uh, so if, it, if it's not just waiting on our prayers, I'd ask, what are we then waiting for? Christ waited for his deliverance. Uh, are we, as Christians, still waiting for our deliverance? aren't we already, as Christians, delivered from our sins? You know, if we've repented and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, then yes, we have been delivered. Um, But if we have been delivered from sins, why do we still sin? Why do we still feel the effects and experience the effects of sin, such as pain, and suffering, and disease, and death. Have we really been delivered if those things are still reality for us? Well, in one sense, we have been delivered from our sins. Christ did come. He did live. He did die. And he was raised from, the death, from death for our sins, and our sins are washed away in his blood as a fact. But in another sense... Our deliverance is not yet complete. We're no longer enemies of God, but we're not yet conformed to the perfect image of Christ. Um, So we have been delivered, but reality says that we're still waiting for that deliverance to be completed. Therefore, in a similar manner that the Psalm reveals a twofold waiting that Christ did, there's also a twofold waiting that we're doing as well. And that first general state of waiting that we are doing, that active waiting that we're doing, is, is, is the process of sanctification. Uh, that's the process of being made holy that each one of us here in Christ are going through. Uh, this is a, lof- a lifelong activity of growth in the likeness of Christ. And sanctifi- sanctification is not something that we can do by ourselves. Um... Therefore, like Christ, we must also wait on the Lord to do this. And, and how does he do this? Well, God uses means or, or methods to sanctify us. Uh, and this begins with, with our election through the power of his Spirit. Um, we can see this truth in Romans 8, verse 29, that reads, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 2 Corinthians 3.18 also. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Well, God also sanctifies us through his means of grace, through the preaching of his word and the proclamation of Christ every week that we come here to hear. Uh, this is really Christ uh, addressing us as his people by his word. This is, you know, If you read Romans 10, the whole chapter, that's what Paul is talking about. But also baptism, that's another means of his grace that we're sanctified by. And baptism is our seal uh, of the sign of what the Holy Spirit has done for us. Um, and also what, we're, what we see here, the Lord's Supper. That's also a means of grace that is part of our process of sanctification. Paul calls this very thing a participation in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The bread and the wine are a fellowship or a sharing in the body and blood of Christ. However, sanctification, as an example of our active waiting, it will never be completed while we live. And this brings us to our second and more intense state of waiting that we do. And this is the wait for the return of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And this has several implications for us. First, it means that, like it did for Christ, it means our glorification. At Christ's coming, the glory of God, that is, his honor, His praise, His majesty, and His holiness, that's all going to be realized in us. Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 20 through 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and when our Savior returns, He's going to transform our earthly bodies to be like His glorious one. And when He appears, we shall be like Him And we shall see him as he really is. Well, the second thing this means for us is found in 2 Peter 3, verse 13 and 14. And that reads, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Part of our glorification is God's final removal of sin from his people in the new heavens and in the new earth. The word "new" has a meaning of superior or improved, in such that the old, the present, will be obsolete. This is what Philippians chapter one verse six speaks about. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans eight nineteen it says, "The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing." of the sons of God. And if you are in Christ today, that is speaking directly to you. Further down in that same chapter 8 of Romans, verse 22, it says, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And you mothers, when you were in labor pain, waiting to deliver your child, I think you can agree that this is an intense waiting like the one described here. These all encompass what our great weight is. It's the complete fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And at that time, the Lord, seated on his throne, he's going to say, I am making all things new. In the new creation, the curse and the burden of sin will finally be eradicated. We will be in the image of God completely and restored. We will have direct and unrestricted access to Him throughout eternity. We are waiting to be perfectly conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, free from sin and its consequences. Participating in the Lord's Supper this morning is our sign that we are in the New Covenant. And it's a reminder of the past sacrifice that Christ made for us. But it also reminds us of what we are waiting for. And that's his promise to return. Verse 1 of chapter of uh, verse 1 of, of Psalm 40. That contains this very promise. And it should encourage us. And with the the enabling of his Holy Spirit, we will wait patiently for the Lord to again incline to us and to hear our cry our cry of, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray and ask thanks. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you as poor and needy and wretched sinners, and we thank you that you have delivered us through Christ's life, through his death, and through his resurrection, we have been saved. Our sins have been forgiven. We are not yet, we will never again experience your wrath. But Father, as we continue to live and wait in this world, we daily face trials and struggles. Lord, please help us to remember and to become focused on the fact that our complete deliverance is coming. And that we are united to Christ and that someday our wait will also be over and we will join him. Lord, we, we praise you for our hope that our deliverance will someday be complete and we give you all our thanks. We give you all our praise. We give Christ all the glory and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.